This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Monday.com. Manage all your core business activities in one place. Start your 14-day free trial by going to monday.com slash twist. And Delighted is the easiest way to measure and monitor your NPS. Claim your free lifetime account complete with a complimentary advisory session with a Delighted concierge at Delighted.com slash twist. Every five or 10 years, somebody comes into Silicon Valley with a bold new vision and they change the funding landscape and how we do business here. Venture capital you've heard of, angel investors you've heard of, that's basically the foundation, the fabric of what we do in Silicon Valley. And then about 10, 15 years ago, Y Combinator started a new way to fund startups in a very large way. An incubator, but wholly unique in its approach, and now doing three, 400 investments a year. Techstars as well, at the same time, they both deserve equal credit. Then you had AngelList and Sequoia Scout Program, taking angel investing and democratizing it, something we've worked on with thesyndicate.com, and many of you have read the book. Then Yuri Milner came into town, and he started putting large bets on speculative companies like Facebook and Twitter. And everybody thought, well, he's the sucker at the poker table. Sure enough, he made the best bets uh, or some of the best bets in the history of our industry. Three, four years ago, we started to hear about SoftBank creating a vision fund, a $100 billion fund, something that has changed the landscape and that people have a lot of questions about. We're very lucky to have Jeff Hausenbold on the program today. He is a managing partner at the SoftBank Vision Fund. And you're nice enough to come on the pod and talk about what you're doing. Uh, so welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Jason. So before we get started here, what did you do uh, just in a capsule for folks listening before you joined the SoftBank Vision Fund? Yeah, right before joining the Vision Fund, I was the CEO of Shutterfly for 11 and a half years. And when I joined, we had 103 employees. And when I left, we had more than 9,000. We went from 1% market share to more than 77% market share. And we beat more than 1,000 venture-backed companies, not to mention some small companies you probably never heard of, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Costco, Kodak, Fuji, Sony, Apple, Yahoo, Microsoft, and AOL, to name a few. And so it was an amazing journey. And how to come in as a fourth CEO in three years, mm -hmm. turn around a business, find product market fit, find profitability, and scale it and take it public. And before that, I was an executive, an early executive at eBay, wow. where I ran m and mm -hmm. I ran uh, the business to consumer group, uh, customer retention, acquisition, uh, marketing, charity, international, a number of uh, things. And when you joined eBay, was that was it public already? It had just gone public, Just gone yes. public, wow. So PayPal was... After they went public or before? After. It was after. Um, and then Half.com, I think you guys bought that yes. at some point. Were you involved in either of those yes. transactions? in Half, yes. Oh, wow. So Half, was that Josh Koppelman from First Round? or It, it was. Josh is amazing and, and the team there. And I remember when he he spent a couple of years post-merger uh, integration and decided to go back to Philadelphia. And he said, I'm going to start a venture fund in Philadelphia. And everyone laughed at him. And I think Josh is having a, a good laugh now. Yeah, Uh for people who don't know, Half.com was a really clever idea that the founder uh, or the co-founder of First Round Capital created, which was buy any CD or book back when people bought physical media for half price. And so it was like a eBay just for books and CDs and, uh, and eBay bought it. What else did eBay buy at that time? 
Um, we bought Ibizar, which became yeah. uh, Europe, and Alondo, which was Germany. Um, we ended up uh, investing and buying EachNet, which became uh, China. Mm-hmm. Um, those were some of the big ones. And then yeah. later on, obviously, PayPal was large and Skype was large. Yeah. So tell me, um, how did you wind up at SoftBank? Yeah, so after 11 and a half great years at Shutterfly, I had never taken any time off. So I grew up on welfare and food stamps. And uh, two days after graduating undergraduate, I started my job. Two days after graduate school, I would quit a job on a Friday, start on a Monday. Kind of one of my uh, uh, my problems as a workaholic. And so after 11 and a half great years, I decided I was going to retire. Mm-hmm. And since it was a public company, I wanted to do a smooth transition. I gave six months. And my wife's like, take a year. You deserve it. I said, i either going to probably start biting my nails or you're going to throw me out of the house if I take a year. Well, the phone starts ringing Ah. and that little voice inside of your head says, well, will they call in six months? And so, you know, fill in the blank, famous person's calling. They want to chat with you. You go have a bunch of meetings. And I was so fortunate. I ended up looking at 62 companies over the course of 14 months. 62. Um, 62. Some of those was, would you want to be in an angel? Do you want to be the chairman? You want to be on the board? You want to be the CEO? But most of them were to come run the company. And through that journey, I had a number of CEO offers and venture and private equity offers. And everyone was saying there's so few really talented, scaled operating executives and you're really good at it and I enjoy it. And so I was really focused on that. And then a good friend of mine, Pete Brigger, who is co-founder of Fortress that SoftBank had just bought, I was having lunch with him and he said, hey, House, what are you going to go do? Mm -hmm. I said, well, here are the five CEO offers I currently have. And I'm thinking about this one or this one. One was a large public tech company. Another one was a private um, venture-backed company. He goes, well, those are all really interesting. You should meet Masa. I just sold my company to him. Ah. And I said, I met him in uh, 1999 when I was at CMGI. He wouldn't remember me. But yeah, make an introduction. I took it as a throwaway. Right. And um, and what he meant was meet Masa because uh, if you go to some of these companies, you may be able to raise money from this new thing he's starting called ah. the Vision Fund. And so that was Monday at lunch. Tuesday, I get a call from Masa's office and he says he would like to meet you. Wow. And I was like, oh, well, um, is he in the city or in Palo Alto? And I no, said, Tokyo. no, Tokyo. Right. And I was like, well, I can't plan. physically get there by tomorrow because it's a day, right? And so I, w- I said to my wife, Masa Yoshi-san wants to meet me, but I have to make a decision by Friday on these five offers. She's like, well, you could think on a plane. Yeah. So I got on a plane, went to see Masa. We had a lovely discussion. And he said, these Did are- Did you go to that like- top floor office where there's a giant conference room and you got it but we were in the living room part of the it, living room right? part yeah. i mean i i've had had lunch with him twice i moss is a fascinating cat like i went to have a meeting with him in a giant conference room that I, how many people can fit in that 50 more <laughs> it's the, the largest conference room you've ever seen uh and then he said uh we have this great meeting we go for two hours they said he had half an hour we talked for two hours right then he says, what are you doing tomorrow? How long are you in Tokyo? I said, well, I'm going back uh, like tomorrow, whatever. He goes, oh. And I said, why? I said, well, you want to have lunch tomorrow? And I said, sure. And so I put my fly back a day. And then I had another two-hour lunch with him back to back. He is so engaged. Yes. And that's him. When he finds someone who um, he can learn from, yeah. he wants to get more. He wants, He's a sponge and he loves to do that. And so um, we were supposed to have 60 minutes. It turned into a couple hours. He had a dossier on me. And at the really? end, he said, you're going to be successful no matter what you do. But you're an entrepreneur, 
and you've been an investor, why don't you come on this journey and help create the vision fund? So you're not just putting all your eggs in one basket as a CEO, and um, you're going to see the biggest and best companies in the world. And we could use a guy like you who uh, can be a mentor and a whisperer to the CEOs and also can be an investor. So come help build the vision fund, be an entrepreneur and an investor at the same time. And it was quite attractive. And so flew around the world, met a bunch of people. And a week later, I was, uh, wow. I think, the 14th investor at uh, the vision fund. We now have 570 people 570 people work at the vision fund how did he explain it at that time what the vision fund would be and had he raised the money yet or is, he had raised part of it where he was raised, he in the process he had raised part of it this was um uh, this was february of 17 of 17 and okay. i started in in may of 17 and so um yeah, well, it was clear was there was a path he like, said um if you think about the asset class of venture capital, there's multiple stages and um, there are people who play in late stage, but companies in today's world, and this is me paraphrasing a long sure. conversation, but capital can be a differentiator because m my sense is in the old days, you could have a business in, um, uh, in New Jersey and the people in New York wouldn't know. Right. Like there was not the information flow with the Internet. Things happen all the time. I was on Groupon's board and there was over 400 competitors within a year. So if you can move quick and kind of plant flags on a global basis, you can create brand and barriers to entry. You could attract the best talent. You can pour more money into R&D. And so we're going to raise a very large fund. We're going to focus on mid to late stage. We're going to invest in iconic companies that can build um, uh, competitive moats. And we're going to be long term patient capital because it's a 14 year fund. And if you look at my track record, and we talked about his amazing track record, obviously Yahoo Japan and Alibaba and um, uh, Sprint and a bunch of things that he had invested in, um, it was quite attractive yeah. as a platform. And that was the word he used a lot. We're building a platform, not building a fund. I'm not, you know, like he thinks in kind of generational terms. Yeah. He also said, look, I'm plenty rich. It's not about money. It's about leaving a legacy. Like if we can invest in companies that make people have more smiles, then we can make money for our LPs and we could do good for society. What was your take when he told you the number? Like when he says it's going to be, did he say it's going to be a $100 billion fund? He said it's going to be a trillion dollar fund. What was, what was his, uh, at that point in time in 2017, his goal for the fund? And then what was when you heard the number? What was your reaction to it? Because you and I have been around the block for a while. And we've heard big numbers many times, but this is a number that dwarfs all numbers. It does. So take me to that moment. Do you say to him, what's the size of the fund? Or does he just say, here's the best part. The fund's going to be X dollar amount. Yeah. So it was already out in the press that he was raising a hundred billion dollar fund oh. or a 90 plus billion dollar okay. fund. And so I had a general sense of it. And he said, look, we're going to start with a hundred billion, but I have a couple hundred billion dollars of other assets under management. And ultimately we'll have trillions of dollars of uh, assets under management across different asset classes. But the inaugural vision fund will be roughly a hundred billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the largest VC was, I think, NEA at a billion nine. Um, and now they subsequently that have, I think, three. Three. Yeah. yeah. So now they've raised it three, three. Obviously, private equity has 10, 12, 18 billion. Sure. But the largest venture capital fund at the time was NEA. And we came onto the scene with a, a different approach. Fund. Yeah. All right. When we get back, I want to understand what the marching orders were for how to deploy this much capital. We're saying here it's 50 times what had previously existed before. This is a level of deployment that's never been seen before. So tell me when you all sat in that, sat in that strategy meeting how you decided how to size the bets when we get back on This Week in Startups.
Blake Barnes, the head of product for LinkedIn Talent Solutions. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Big fan. All right. Oh, thanks for that. What's your favorite question? See, for me, favorite comes down to what's most functional, what's useful for okay. the Okay. What, what do you, what do you so think are the clever of, functional ones? We, we find a lot of questions, for example, might be around your experience with technology. Like how many years of machine learning experience do you have? Right. You know, or, uh, you know, tell us more about the languages you use, these sorts of things. So some for some of our more technical roles, those are some of the ones that have been most effective or useful for a hires to find the right candidates. My favorite was somebody put a crypto add out and they're like must must have 20 years experience and i was like gonna go ahead and say you know five years ago somebody didn't have 20 years of crypto experience this thing's been around for about 18 months <laughs> you know uh it's it's really funny interesting you say that you know one of the things that uh we so we build a wide range of products another one is uh talent insights it's it's a product that helps uh companies all over the world understand talent pools um and one of the things it can do is is help recruiters uh work with hiring managers to understand what's really possible right mm. you know saying hey i, I want uh you know, I'm looking to hire a, a product manager, you know, with 20 years of native development, uh, uh, you know, for $100,000 a year in San Francisco. And they're like, yeah, good luck with yeah, that. Yeah, good luck with that. And yeah. Talent Insights can can help hiring managers oh. and recruiters, you know, help them understand what the available talent pools are out there. So basically, you can give them a report, an analysis of, hey, if you need somebody in this field, here's what you can expect to pay for this number of years experience. Yeah, or how all these qualifications match together to, to kind of like say, here's the possible pool of applicants. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You pay what you want and you get the first fitty for free. The 5-0, the $50 bill. Just visit linkedin.com slash twist. Again, linkedin.com. You got that in your URL already. Just add slash twist, T-W-I-S-T, and you get that $50 for your first job post. It's $50 for terms and conditions. Of course, apply Thanks, Blake, for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. It's All been right. a great Let's fun. get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to This Week in Stars. We've got a big guest this week. The house is in the building. Jeff Hausenbold is here. He's JT Bold on the Twitter. And he's a managing partner at the SoftBank Vision Fund. He's been in the industry for a long time. Um, when we left our hero, that's you, House. I can call you House. Please do. People call you House? All my friends. Really? My yeah. friends call me Jake Al. The house, house and Jake Al in the building. We're in the building. We're in the building. So- $100 billion is a very large amount of money. Some of the largest firms have multi-billion dollars in capital under management across a decade. Now we're talking about a $100 billion fund. What was the deployment period? You said the scope of the fund was 14 years. Most venture capital funds say 10. So you added four to it. So it was a 14-year fund. The primary investment period would was expected to be what? Three, four years? Yeah. So it's a 12-year fund with two one-year extensions, right? Typically, it's 10 plus two. So yep. we're two, two to four years longer. It's $100 billion. The investment period was within five years. Huh. We ended up deploying 80-ish billion in, in roughly three years. So a little bit of head of schedule. And if you go back and think about where um, Moss's vision has been, and it has been more right than it's been wrong, right? Sure. His, his returns have been phenomenal, and he's one of the richest people in the world. And he was the first, when he created SoftBank, it was so, um, it was Software Bank, yeah, right, and he created basically productivity software for the IBM 386, and so he caught the PC wave early, right, and then he saw the internet wave, and at a moment of time, he was the richest man in the world right. um, for four days, <laughs> and his, um, if you would, his mistake was he didn't sell as the dot com bubble was bursting, right, because he was like. I don't understand why would people sell? The internet is fundamentally going to change things and these yeah. companies are going to come back. Right. 
And then the next wave was broadband. And he saw that and he jumped on that. He bought Vodafone that became SoftBank Mobile. Um, so um, broadband into mobile. And that has been a huge business and a success and spits off a ton of free cash flow for SoftBank Group. And now the next wave, and as you know, major technological um, waves tend to last seven to 15 years. Yeah. And so uh, the belief is around, Masa calls it artificial intelligence. I think about it as data because you need data yeah. to do ML or AI. But it's essentially the same thing as how do you collect data uh, to make more informed decisions, to create competitive modes, to have a better product or service. And so um, Masa fundamentally believes, and we have a shared vision around the uh, fund, is that data is going to fundamentally change the way um, we go to work and we go to um, uh, life. And so the investment thesis is to find amazing entrepreneurs tackling some of the hardest problems in the world that are thinking global, that are not trying to make incremental bets, but truly revolutionary. And if they can be providing positive benefits to society, like my investment in plenty and nutritionally dense um, uh, leafy greens with less than 1%, none of the environmental impact, affordable housing at Katera, um, Memphis meats, you know, providing proteins without the slaughter of animals. If we can create positive impact on a global basis, make returns for our LPs and find the best and brightest companies that need capital, connections, and counsel to truly differentiate, then we'll be successful. So let's talk about the bet sizing. I'm a poker player. You play cards? Um, more than you know. I used to be on Caesar's board, and we oh, own wow. the World Series of Poker. And Great. Awesome. So I could count um, eight decks. We'll play later. Awesome. Uh, have you played much poker or uh, mostly blackjack? Uh, both. Okay. That's too bad. <laughs> you bring the say, money, and I'll bring uh, I, I, the I, card count. I was counting. hoping you were going to say, like, I play blackjack, but not poker. I'd be yeah. like, I can teach you. Remember, uh, if you don't know who the fish at the table. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about bet sizing. You have this large amount of money. You have founders who previously had raised 10, 20 million. Now you come in and you offer 100, 200 million. This, the, the, I was faced with a lot of founders saying, what's going on here? Why can't I raise 200 million? And I said, well, there's this once in a lifetime thing or once in an industry thing that's occurring right now. Their behavior is something new, is a paradigm shifting approach. Um, if you're lucky enough to get involved in it, great. We'll talk about it then. But please do not think that that is going to be the default the, case. The new norm. Right. It's not the new norm. There are not five vision funds. There is only one. Right. Um, and so when you come into this, pick a company like Brandless, which I had Tina on the program. You and I both know Tina for a long time. That one didn't work out. Uh, but it was a large tech size, 100, I think 200 million in true trances of 100 million. What's the, what's the approach to picking the amount of money to put into it? And then- what is the advice you give to people who've never had that much money at their disposal? Because you worked at a large company, went from 100 to 9,000 employees. You know how to be a steward of that capital. The critique I've heard from some folks is some people just are not ready to handle that much capital coming into a business. So is there some kind of debrief where you go, by the way, you're going to watch your bank account, have nine figures in it. Don't lose your shit. Like, Stay focused. How do you counsel a new founder? Great questions. Yeah. On how to do this. Yeah. So there's no formula in how much money you inject into a company, but I'll give you a little bit of the strategic rationale and let's talk about um, how do you make sure you don't get um, rich and lazy or defocused and silly, right? Yeah. <laughs> defocused um, and silly. I like it. So, so when we think about what are the types of companies that could use a lot of capital, 
very fast growing consumer companies, right? Yeah. Where customer acquisition, brand building, get the viral word of mouth, or in some cases, if you're lucky enough, the network effects to be kicking in. Mm-hmm. Um, companies that can be global overnight that are asset light that you can bring that business. ByteDance is a great example with TikTok and others. Alibaba is a great example of that. Um, then there are companies that are either capital intensive, so they need to build many units or they have to put many trucks on the road or cars on the road. Um, there are companies that are R&D intensive. It takes hundreds of millions of dollars to come up with an autonomous um, vehicle. Yeah. It takes hundreds of millions of dollars to find the next therapeutic um, uh, drug. Um, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to have a breakthrough in taking traditional field farming and bring it in, in-house in a warehouse and, and make it vertical. So companies that need capital to either overcome um, the number of units, the R&D, or the fast scale. And so those are candidates for larger quantums of money. Okay, so let me just see if I get that. Um, if you're going to go global, you got a brand. Um, going global means you got to put boots on the ground in a lot of places. Correct. That takes capital. Uh, if you got R&D, it takes a lot of people and a lot of time. So you got people times time. That takes a lot of capital. Yeah. And then if you want, if you're in a competitive space, the capital just gives you the ability to outlast the competitors and outlast, the- but to hire better people. Oh, right. Yeah, that's um, a big so you one. Google did this amazing, right? Like they went and hired every PhD. I was running Alta Vista when yeah. Google was a you know forty person company, and um, what did they do? And how did they create a moat? Is they basically hoovered up every PhD uh, in the country, right? So you could create moats through your human capital through um, your ability to outmarket, your ability to uh, move with speed, um, your ability to sign larger partnerships. So if you have a lot of money in the bank and you're looking, look, look at um, DoorDash, right? They have 80 plus of the top 100 um, right. food providers in the US. Be, when they didn't have money in the bank, they didn't have nearly as many once right. we came in and put money in It's a lot easier to get somebody like a McDonald's or Burger King, whatever those big Correct. brands are. I'm not sure which ones right. they have the partnerships with. Um, so capital matters. More, yeah, they feel more comfortable in Correct. partnership that with That you're those. not going away. You're not going away. And really, if you look at the Google example, I think you gave them the charitable approach to it, which was, hey, you know, they got all the PhDs. I, the, the really sharp elbowed part about that from what I heard from a lot of people was they just didn't want entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs on the market. So they gave them just absurd salaries and would say things in, you know, internally or in private, like, yeah, we, we're paying that person like a million dollars a year so they don't start a company. Yeah. So that one could was, eventually compete with us. Right. One was just pay academics a lot more than they're making as a postdoc. Right. The other is do a bunch of acu hires to block out, you know, the blossoming little seedlings yeah. that may grow up into oak trees. Um, and then sometimes they would buy them and leverage that platform. Sometimes they bought them and just shut them down. It's not a, it's not an idiosyncratic to Google. Many large companies have done that, right? Yeah. It's, Pretty nuts. So how do you go from, okay, so now we make it a determination that this is a company that makes sense for the vision fund. By the way, we do the same thing that every venture capitalist does, right? We look for amazing entrepreneurs, large TAMs. We look for um, uh, business model, positive unit economics. We're looking for ability to attract talent. Um, we're looking for product market fit, like all the same things that most VCs do. What we do a little different when you're giving 
200 million versus 2 million, you do a lot more diligence, uh-huh. right? And so our diligence level looks more like what a private equity firm would do when they're buying a company than an early stage investor who is largely betting on the idea and the management team. Right. Maybe you're looking at bank statements or something like that as a VC. Maybe you're talking to the management team. What does that private equity deep dive look like? You send in a team to sit there for a month and, and build models. What does it look like? Yeah, I'll give you an example. It depends yeah. on where you are in the stage, right? Sure. Um, our sweet spot is mid to late stage. We've done early stage stuff too, and we've done very late stage stuff like buying stock in NVIDIA that was already public. Um, so if it's mid to late stage, you actually have financial history. Mm-hmm. But instead of looking at a company, we'll go out and look at, like I just did a deal where we looked at 27 global competitors and we flew around the world wow. and made sure we understood is their technology better? The, do we believe in their novel approach to this innovation? Um, we do background checks. We are looking at business models. We're talking to potential business partners. Huh. Um, we're, we're jumping in the company. And so our process takes if a typical VC from kind of meet to, you know, sign term sheet at bucks is, you know, call it five weeks. Ours might take 12 weeks. Right. And so when you're writing that quantum of capital, you want to make sure How you're more thoughtful. How many people are involved in the process of closing, you know, one of those nine figure deals? 10, 100? So typically, it's a managing partner and a team of four or five investment professionals. And then we have an amazing team in tax and audit and background checks and legal and compliance and wow. risk and ta- right. And so it takes, it takes a village. Um, and it's not, it's no different than most, uh, uh, private equity firms. So, so we look for the same thing. We make that investment, but I am one of, I have these 25 Jeffisms to business. Yeah. And if you have me on for part two, three yeah. and four, we'll get to them. But one of them is nail it, then scale it, right? Nail and you it, know, Oh, yeah. You know this. If if you have positive unit economics, then you can play forward and open up more markets, and you can sell more things. But if you are uh, if you're making something for five bucks and you're selling it for three, it's going to be hard to scale. Right. And so I try to focus the management team on making sure we understand who our core customer is, and not being distracted by the adjacent markets or ancillary businesses. At first, understanding who you truly are. So at Shutterfly. It was young moms. We had 83% of our customers were women. And when I took over, Jim Clark was my chairman. Yeah. And, you know. I've heard stories about Jim. We yeah. have him on the pot, too. He's so great. I he's, heard he's, he's iconoclastic as a board member. He, he's he's brilliant. He's, you know, a physics professor. Yeah. Um, but he's not a mom who is coming home with three kids after a full day. And she wants to uh, make sure as the chief memory officer, she's preserving the family's history. Right. So he wants the coolest, latest, fastest gadgets, right. right, as a billionaire. But the core market was the what I coined the CMO, the chief memory officer. By the way, she also is the chief medical officer. Yeah. She's the chief culinary officer, the right. chief education officer, right? right. The, the the women in the household do way more work than they get credit for. And so understand who your core customer is. What is the product or service? Is it solving a hard enough problem that they want to take out their credit card and pay you for that, right? And so we spend a lot of time on that. And then making sure that you're being smart about where do you spend every dollar. And so there's this balance and that pendulum shifts, right? right. We're in the middle of a, a very violent shift there um, between growth and profitability. And for the last 10 years, growth has been winning out every single day in the market until about four or five months ago. Until our favorite company, Uber, went public. uh, And that's when everybody decided, no, growth isn't important. Unit economics are. When we get back from this quick break, I want to talk about the Uber deal. Great. Um, And I want to talk about this specific shift. And if it's healthy, um, if you expected it, um, and if it's the new normal, 
And are we missing an opportunity to grow these companies bigger? Because it feels to me like Uber post going public is a less exciting company and a less ambitious company. And to me, I actually have some regret about the shift that occurred. I feel it occurred too soon. And I want to know if you feel the same way when we get back on This Week in Startups. Listen, I know you're running a very complicated startup and you got multiple projects going on concurrently. You got multiple pokers in the fire and you're trying to figure out what is the ground truth? What is actually going on in your organization? Well, unlock your team's potential with Monday.com. Monday.com is an intuitive work OS that powers teams to run workflows, processes, and projects in one digital workspace. Teams can share projects and workflows in minutes on a platform that quickly adapts to your shifting needs and it liberates the team from all this grunt work, and it connects them in one collaborative workspace. You can customize workflow templates to manage anything your way. Time tracking, to meet important deadlines, dashboards, to gain valuable insights at a glance. Precious using Monday here in our organization when we look at potential accelerator companies to come to the Launch Accelerator. And he chats with them to see if they're a good fit or not for the accelerator. Sometimes they've made too much progress. Sometimes they have not made enough progress. In both cases, we want to keep in touch with those people and make them feel good about the projects. So he separates them into our Goldilocks zone. He also adds notes in the comment section so the team can easily view what the next recommended uh, steps are. Join over 100,000 companies that use Monday.com to focus on the work that requires their true talents. Start your 14-day free trial by going to monday.com slash twist Monday, like the day of the week, dot com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, House is in the building. Jeff House and Bold is here, managed partner, SoftBank Vision Fund. Um, Uber was the biggest bet you made in Vision Fund 1? Uh, I think the second bet, Didi, was the biggest bet. Oh, Didi, which was Uber's competitor in China. Right, and we did that deal prior to Uber. Prior to Uber. Yeah, this was a, quite a chess there's so much to unpack here. We're going to spend a segment on Three-dimensional chess. It was a three-dimensional chess game. So you guys had done DD. Travis is the competitor of all competitors in the world. He's uh, a pit bull. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is not the guy you want to go up against, even if you're Masa. And he decides he's going to compete in China against Masayoshi-san uh, and DD, which is insane on one level, but shows his ambition. And I, when I talked to him, he said, listen- we're, go- we're going for the gold in every market. If we get the silver, that's okay. Right. But, but we're bronze, gold. we're out. Bronze, we're out. That's right. Um, and I think that deal wound up um, being in everybody's best interest. Uber got like 17% of it. Then you guys came in and started figuring out you're going to make a bet in America. And this is where the chessboard got really interesting. You guys were, you said before, you looked at all 27 companies in whatever market. So I assume you're doing that in the ride sharing market. Absolutely. You placed bets everywhere. And then you had to negotiate with Travis and the board and try to figure out an Uber deal. But you're also looking at Lyft, but you don't want to invest in Lyft because you said you like the iconic brand. Masa likes number ones. Lot number one. So Masa has shown what he wants, and then the board is negotiating. They want to get a good price. Take me to that negotiation. How did that all go down? How close were you to investing in Lyft? Or was I just a staking horse? Because I remember that. And then when I heard that and I got the tender offer, I was like, you know what? I'm selling 20, 30%, whatever it takes to get Masa to In. do this deal. Correct. Because my, if I, my logic was if I give Masa 10% of my shares for free, the other 90% become worth 30% more. 
literally gifting Masa and SoftBank 10% of your shares <laughs> would have made this worth it. Um, and so I was, I was obviously very bullish on it. But, but tell me what you can about this. How close were you to Lyft? Yeah, so w- we had a, um, a thematic investing idea, which was mobility is going to fundamentally change the movement of people and goods around the world. And we invested in Didi, Ola, 99, Grab. Uber, DoorDash, right? And so we had a big bet in China and it was doing really well. And uh, Cheng Wei and the team at Didi, um, they're as fiercely competitive as Travis uh, was as a team and they were taken over. And as we all know, it is almost impossible for an American uh, technology or internet company to compete um, by themselves in Asia. It doesn't matter if it's South Korea or Japan or China. Well, South Korea, I mean, it's just impossible. It's impossible. I mean, Naver and Daum are... Right. And where's Google in the mix? And, and I lived through Alta Vista and we were in 138 countries. I lived through eBay and our failures in Japan and China. Um, and so I have, the, I have the scars about that. But yet Travis had the chutzpah to say, I'm going to go win in, in China. And I think it. in the end, it, it, it worked out. So we needed to have have a mobility play in the largest market called the United States. And at that point in time, there were really only two players. There was Uber and there was Lyft. And yes, there were dozens of smaller players, but not Masa style. And if you're the vision fund, you don't need to play in second and third tier uh, assets. And so um, we really wanted to invest in Uber. It was a very um, unusual dynamic, large board, um, the transition between Travis and Dara going on in that period of time, um, regulatory issues at the local level. And um, it was a complex negotiation. And I, I will say this. I think Masa was going to make a bet in the U.S. So while the probability of us doing Lyft prima facie was low, if we didn't get Uber, we were going to make a mobility play in the United and States. And therefore, there's only one left. That's one left. 10% chance, 20% chance? What would you put it at? Yeah, 10 to 30% chance. Yeah. And, you know, it became what I'll call kind of a meme in the valley. And, and Darv uh, framed it well uh, publicly. I'd rather have the cannon pointing behind me than at me. Right. Yeah. And and so that has become a, a meme. And it, and some of that, um, you know, was negotiation strategy. But it was also clear because we had a um, a thematic desire and a strategy to plant flags in this mobility uh, uh, place. And then we also did DoorDash and we were negotiating DoorDash before the Uber deal. But the um, uh, the Uber deal got done first. And they Uber Eats was a relatively small part of the strategy at that point in time. And we thought it was not a winner take all market uh, in food delivery. And so, so- what you're explaining there is a little bit of this conflict in the valley you're not supposed to invest in two competitors it's uh, considered bad form yet i sit on the doordash board with six other investors five of which are invested in uber as well right so uh one of the things that happens to us as investors is a lot of times a company will pivot or add or they just start um a new business they start a new business and the 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 best example that nobody ever brings up is you know apple and google uh eric schmidt was i think on apple's board yes and, and Google powered search on Apple. And, and yeah. then all of a sudden, they start working on Android in secret for a couple of years. And then Steve went ballistic. And there's that famous like photo of Steve and Eric Schmidt at the Palo <laughs> Stanhill Road at that mall <laughs> having coffee, talking about it. Somebody took a picture of it right as all that was happening. And you get off the board like a week later. Um, you try to avoid these, but it happens. Um, and now it's led to... Hey, does Uber buy DoorDash? Obviously, as an investor, you'd rather see them consolidate and you'd rather work that out. But it's really, is it up to the founders or the board to make that decision? How does that go down? Because the DD one, Uber owning 70% of DD, pretty good idea. 
Based on valuations, I think DoorDash is worth 10 or something. Last private round was 13. 13. And Uber's worth 60 or 50 or 60, whatever the coronavirus discount is right now. Probably a good time to buy. That's not investment advice. It's just reality. Probably a good time to buy any of these stocks if you think they're going to be here in 10 years. That makes no sense for me to for Uber to give up one-fifth or whatever it is, one-sixth. It would be a great purchase for 10% maybe. How does how do those deals go down? And how do you navigate that when you got, you know, you're, you got two players at the same poker table. You, you, you back, you stake two players in the same poker game. Yeah. So, so I, I'll talk more in general terms because yes, DoorDash has recently filed. Yeah. And we want to be careful. Let's make this hypothetical. You know, in another case with two companies in enterprise software that decide to compete, right. what and you had bets in what. How do you navigate that? It's almost always the decision of the CEO and the management team, right? Investors will um, plead their case. They'll share their strategic insight. They might talk about their own desire. Some VCs need an exit, right? They want to raise the next fund or the partner wants to retire or buy a new boat, whatever yeah. uh, the case is. Um, but almost always it's Hilarious. up to the CEO. It really is like a human. They're like, you might have a partner at a venture firm <laughs> who's on the board who's like, I'm done. Right. I, I'm trying to get out of here. Right. Um, it's ticking. So you never know what the individual agenda is. So we, we generally, like most VCs, we want to be supportive of management. As long as they have a strategic rationale for a plan and they're being successful, you're going to continue back um, uh, the the player that you made your initial investment. And so um, when you whenever you look at consolidation in an industry, you want to make sure you understand both the cost and the revenue synergies. What's the likelihood of achieving that? You want to be thoughtful about the post-merge integration, the culture. You want to be thoughtful about regulatory environments. Um, you want to make sure that it enhances the value proposition to the customer that you're going to be able and Sprint and T-Mobile is a great example, right? You have ATT and Verizon with a lot of market share and be able to provide viable uh, choice to um, underserved markets is, is a good thing for consumers. It, it reduces um, duplicative R&D expenditures so you can focus more on innovation. You can offer lower prices. And, and so you, you do the thoughtful analysis. And then, as you know, you've been involved in a ton of these. It often comes down to what? Ego, mm -hmm. right? Does CEO A want to sell the CEO B? So I was on Groupon's board and we all know how that played out, yeah. right? With Andrew Mason and, and yeah. Google. Um, on the flip side, Rose and Swag made a deal with Mark and they were buying it for a billion and Sue didn't want to do the deal. And then it was off and now where is Facebook? Um, I was at eBay and e Yahoo was buying eBay. Then eBay was buying Yahoo. Right. Um, I was at Alta Vista and I came home from my honeymoon early to buy Google for less than a billion. Um, and we all know how that turned around and where Alta Vista is versus how Google. How close was that? It, it was pretty close, right? Uh, Google almost sold several times. You go talk to Michael Dell and he almost sold. You go talk to Apple and he was selling to um, uh, Sun Microsystems for four and a half billion dollars. And then the Microsoft settlement happened and Microsoft gave Apple money to stay yeah. alive. Yeah. So everyone gets That iconic to moment when they or ha Steve Jobs like phones in Bill Gates and yeah. put him on a giant screen. Yes. You remember that moment? <laughs> I do. We should cut that video in here. <laughs> That'd be it awesome. It was such a great troll by Jobs because Jobs had done the 1984 commercial where the person comes swinging the sledgehammer, throws it at the yep. big brother on the screen. And literally, Bill Gates falls for this. He says, no, you don't have to come in person. Just phone in. Phone it's in. all good. We'll, we'll just put you on the screen. And they literally put him up on the screen. It's like Russian catfishers today, right? What does it mean? <laughs> uh, people are trolling people and oh, making yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, And he puts Bill Gates like full face on the thing, which is a literal parallel to the 1984. And what he was fighting against was like this- The, the, the man, The right? man, the big yeah. brother. And it's just like, can you imagine your 
your Bill Gates and you give, I think he gave him $100 million lifeline or something like that. And they said, we're going to bring office to the Mac. Right. And the whole crowd groans as if Darth Vader was just put on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> like the rebel convention. And now they're a trillion plus dollar company. So the amazing thing, you and I, you know, we start out in New York. We've seen right. the uh, the many cycles. Were you, oh, wait, you were from Brooklyn too? Or? I was from Brooklyn. Yep. Uh, I'm a year older than you. Where in Brooklyn? Uh, Flappish Avenue, right near Prospect Park. That is hilarious. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. Uh, interesting. So we've seen a lot. What did your parents do? Um, my dad uh, was a truck driver. My mom was a homemaker. I was uh, first generation. Are they still to alive? Or? My mom lives a mile away from me, and my dad unfortunately passed about uh-huh. uh, fifteen years ago. Sorry about that. He must have been so proud to see you like go from Brooklyn to the boardroom. Yeah, oh, my that, Lord. It, um, what does it, mom think of all this? She must be thrilled. Mom's proud, and and you know, you and I share. I think this too is like I wish we as a as society would focus more on education because I went from the bottom 10% yep. to the top 1% because we don't have a fixed caste system, right. right? It's because you get an education. I tell my three teenage uh, boys that they could take your job. They can't take your education and don't ever let them take your self-worth, right? right? And so education, work hard and luck, you could change your lot in life in, in this uh, country. And we have all this discourse and this polarizing um, uh, sense where we used to be, um, you know, we used to be, uh, a common ground called Americans. Now, like we're more entrenched so in tribal. these tribal, and it's so weird that when you and I came up, the eighties, nineties, two thousands, when we sort of got into our careers. Oh my god! I just had flashbacks of exactly. acid wash jeans. And, exactly. Um, well, th- yeah. Yeah. All this great stuff. But even still, despite the the fashion mistakes, it, there was this hope and dream that you could. Go from the bottom ten percent to the top. Horatio 10%. Alger, right? Yeah, and you, you could just do the work. And back then, it was so hard to find the information. When we were coming out there, you know, the internet was just coming online. It's when called we were, microfiche. Go to the library. go to the microfiche. Go to the library, and we had to go search for information. And you wanted to find a term sheet. You wanted to find out how venture capital worked. You, there was no information. There was books. Maybe you find a magazine article. Asymmetric there. information allowed yes. for a semi-fixed caste system with the flow of information on the internet. Yes. Everyone has the same opportunity and possibility uh-huh. to self-learn, to figure it out, and I think it unlocks and it levels the playing field that I think is great. And if you look at and a lot of people have written about this, but if you look at the number of immigrants that are running some of the iconic companies of our generation <laughs> and my kids' generation, it's unbelievable. And that's the Sundar, beauty of America. Satya, Elon. I mean, these are all immigrants. Right. They didn't oh, come. Me, from- uh, uh, Pierre Amidadar, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's amazing. And so we Steve should Jobs, celebrate. You know, adopted son of, a, of an immigrant. Right. You know? We should celebrate that. America is still a melting pot where we take the best of every culture yes. and you have a level playing yes. field. But if we want to continue to be competitive on a global basis, we need to invest in education. If you look at the debates on both sides of the aisle, did you hear anything about education no. except for the forgiveness of uh, student loans, which right. is a financial decision largely? Right. And they're not talking about making sure our public um, uh, education system is robust, right. that it's self-learning, it's using technology, that we're um, not just locked in a tenure system, but we're rising up the teachers who are, are, are the best and the brightest, and that we're respecting and rewarding the teachers uh, more than we are the people who happen to have a really cool YouTube video. And so I think as a society, we should be talking more about education if we want to remain competitive. It's so clear, and it's so clear today that more of the information is available online and that skills are more important than credentials. There's literally some kid who went and took all of the MIT free courses online uh, and he did it in like a year or two 
Uh, no, he did in a year, I think. And then he wrote a book on it. Uh, we got to have this person on the podcast. Let's invest in him. I know. Right. But he basically was like, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but it's all right there. It's free. It's free. Yeah. And that. I'm on the board of Carnegie Mellon where I went undergrad and, um, you Pittsburgh? know, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, leading AI, robotics, computer incredible. science school. Incredible. It's incredible. Like what's going I lost on. But as an LP. Yeah. So when we go back and you think about, um, great companies mm. get to rewrite history, right? And right. this is what I was saying. Like Apple was selling, some was selling, Dell was selling, Facebook was selling, uh, Google was selling. And, and so sometimes the best deal you do is not to do the deal. Right. It's, it's Amazing. I was talking to somebody about like these open courseware, and I said to like, a very high profile person, like as high profile as it gets, and I said, "Let me ask you a hypothetical. You've got this big ML AI thing going on with this like very high profile project. If somebody came to you with an MIT degree, and another person came to you, and with a folder, and they said, "I did the MIT courseware. Here's all of my work from it." And I did it on nights and weekends. And they handed you the middle folder. And he said, I'll stop you right there. I'm hiring the, the latter. Absolutely 100%. Because, and it's so obvious why. Like this person had the hustle to take that opportunity. And the other person went through the front door. This person just hacked it. You want the hacker. You know what I call them? PhDs. I love <laughs> hiring PhDs. Poor, hungry, and desirous. All right. When we get back from this, that's incredible. Uh, we got to get the other 24 euphemisms, the house-isms, when we get back. Uh, and I, I didn't ask you about growth versus profit, so let's circle back around with that one because I think it's super important when we get back on This Week in Startups. When I'm evaluating startups, I always ask, are you recording your NPS score? What is Net Promoter Score? It's very simple. This is when you get a little email after you've purchased something, and it says, how likely are you to recommend this product to a friend, one through 10. The people who score nine and 10, they're very enthusiastic about your product, aren't they? That's why they pick nine and 10. People who do six and under, they're like detractors. They don't want to promote your product. They might even say something bad about it. And then there's people in the between who are kind of indifferent, right? They would score seven or eight. If you track your NPS score with Delighted.com, you are going to understand your consumers really well. The companies that have high promoter score are companies like Tesla. You've met Tesla owners where they can't shut up about how great the product is like me. That's what you want. That's when a product grows by word of mouth and that is free. Well, in order to do that, you have to track it. If you use Delighted.com, they'll let you segment those users they'll do analytics on it and your organization is going to see those reports as they come in it is an amazing amazing company and our portfolio company Graver is uh, doing on-demand uh, marketing and video and their ceo dorian loves delighted.com uh, and she commented actually on their fantastic and personal customer support so join companies like instacart envision and rent the runway right now by claiming your lifetime delighted account complete with a complimentary advisory session with a delighted concierge they're going to give you that service right now for free it's over one thousand dollars in value the listeners of This Week in Startups get to talk to the Delighted Concierge by going to Delighted.com slash twist. You can build all these best practices, get the response rate great, and have all that robust reporting all in a very easy-to-use interface. And when I say easy-to-use, it is a beautiful product. You're also beyond NPS. You also get things like uh, CSAT, CSAT, and CES and others. Go check out Delighted.com slash twist. Thanks for supporting the pod. All right, house is in the building. Let's talk, Jeff, about the switch that SoftBank, uh, not SoftBank, Uber was forced to do because of public markets. Dara takes over for Travis. Well known. We don't have to get into that. He goes on the apology tour. He tries to clean up uh, some of the uh, mistakes that were made. 
tries to get people back on their side and thinks he does a pretty good job at that goes on this like worldwide apology tour um <clears throat> and then the public markets say uber can never be profitable and you and i with the inside information you and i who've been involved with the company for a long time know exactly how easy it is to make this company profitable yes you're doing 1.7 billion rides in a quarter 2 billion rides in a quarter you lose a billion dollars half of it or you lose a billion and change and half of that is a self-driving unit and you know, there's an investment, obviously, in the food category and investment in some other things. Those are called investments. If you shut down those investments and you raise prices just 10 cents, 50 cents a ride, now the thing is a money printing machine. And it's got $12, 13000000000 billion in cash in the bank at the time. And everybody is like, it can never be profitable. And I, it goes to basic math. Yes. If you, let's just say you were losing, if you take out all those investments, in the core business, a couple hundred million, you just raise prices. Is anybody's behavior going to change in an Uber if it's- 20 cents, 50 20, cents more. 20 to 50 cents more, 10, 20, 30 cents on a short ride, a dollar or $2 from the airport. The behavior doesn't change. And even if you did hypothetically change for the bottom 5%, who cares? It just springs to instant profitability. What, what, are, what are the public markets missing? And is this like the influence of late stage journalists and the press who don't understand- how business w actually works fundamentally. I mean, I know you can't get into it with the press, but I can. I mean, yeah. it, when I see press not being able to do basic math, <laughs> it's just mind-boggling that anybody trusts what they read anymore. And I don't. I hate Trump, and I hate fake news that he can pin that on journalists. But journalists need to do a better job at basic effing math, in my mind. Yeah. So let's talk about. So I ran a public company for ten of the twelve years I was at uh, Shutterfly, and often public investors they also miss unabsorbed uh, corporate SGNA, right? And that's a great way that you Explain know. What that is. So. Um, if, if you think about it, as you were talking about the unit economics, if it costs you five bucks to make something, you sell it for eight, you're making either a gross margin, which is what's left over after you pay the cost of goods sold, um, or cogs, cogs, uh, as it's, uh, as it's called. And then you're making other investments, marketing, you're hiring more engineers to build more products and services. You may be entering new markets that are lost leaders in the beginning. And so the, uh, and you've hired a staff in accounting and finance and legal and all this to absorb a much bigger business because you want to make sure that you have the right infrastructure. Right. The foundation, the building. Correct. And an easy way to think about it is if you have a factory, what your capacity utilization is in the early days when you're not making a ton of units, the, each unit costs more. When you make lots and you're at full scale, you're amortizing the total cost of that manufacturing uh, over the number of units and the per unit price comes down. So a lot of companies are investing for the future and that's what we like as venture investors. We want to see people with a solid business plan that have long um, uh, roads ahead of them and large TAMs and that they know how to be good stewards of capital. TAM, total addressable market. Total addressable market. Um, and that they're smart about their capital allocation. And we want to see that not only their core business will have lots of growth, but that there's other businesses that you can layer on uh, after that. So eBay's uh, one of the best business models, enterprise software is a good one, but eBay was profitable from day one. And yet we were investing in international. We were investing in fixed price. We were investing in um, Billpoint, which was the competitor of PayPal. And, uh, and then, you know, before that split off, PayPal is now a 
you know, $140 billion business. And so we had adjacent markets. So when there's unabsorbed uh, corporate SGNA, i.e. the company's not yet big enough to um, uh, support on a total uh, basis profitability, um, then you have losses. And that's how you turn a company in EPS and EBITDA will grow faster than your revenue growth at some point. Earnings what, per share. Earnings per share. Yeah. And what has happened uh, over the last few months is a shift from um, growth to value. Hmm. And if it, we're, we're at the late stages, the longest bull market that we've seen. And in our lifetimes. In our lifetimes. And people have been chasing yield or returns with um, interest rates around the world. You know, the 10 years at 80 basis points today. Japan, it's negative. Europe, it's negative. Which people- basically means if you were to put money into one of these devices, you're going to get back very little or less. Right. Which means you're voting that the world is going to be worse. Come to an end. And it doesn't make any sense. And Warren Buffett has showed over time, right? It continues to go up in patient long-term capital. You know and weird about this? The world is going to end concept. If the world does, in fact, end, well, then it doesn't matter. So (laughs) who wants to live in that world anyway? Why am I making a bet? Okay, I'm totally having dessert for dinner now. Well, it's just like, why am I making a bet on the world ending? It's the most ridiculous, dystopian, negative bet you can make. If it, in fact, ends, you don't need the money. And we lived through Y2K, remember? We made it through Y2K. We thankfully made it through 9-11. We made it through SARS and MERS. We made it through the Vietnam War. World War II. Humanity will continue to innovate. We will carry on. Coronavirus, Nazis, 9-11, doesn't matter. Right. And we'll, even why we'll continue. We'll continue to marshal on. And if you take a long term view, right, you get the uh, effect of compounding. And why so are people so short term. I mean, this is why Moss is a genius. He's thinking 30 years. He's well, not thinking three. No. And, and, and really his mindset is I'm 60 something years old, 63 years old. I have enough money. I can't spend it all. How do I have an impact on society? How do I bring more smiles uh, to people around the yeah, world? How do we let them live better? Um, have more fun, you know, be more Love productive. It. So, um, basically people are chasing yield. And so that means they're, they're coming into uh, equities and the U S market and the Chinese market is where the vast majority of innovation, not all of it, the vast majority of innovation occurs. And so people have been paying up for growth. And I think there was a belief of a couple things. You have, um, you have fundamental, um, uh, uh, changes in um, politics across the globe. You see more people being more nationalistic and closed in their mindset. You have the Chinese and U.S. trade spat. You have some issues in the Middle East. You have um, negative interest rates. You have disinflation. Um, you have this fear of, um, you know, a socialist president. You have fear of the coronavirus now. But you also fear have Trump this Trump having four terms, right? And and your fear. And then you people were like, oh my god, you remember when Andreessen was talking about software eats the world? What if ever a robot eats everyone's job? Which isn't going to happen, right? Yeah, so you have all this fear, and and markets go up and down. But we saw this with Brexit. It plummeted and came back. We saw this uh, when the credit markets froze in 16. We saw this in December of 18 yep. um, uh, when the Fed was raising rates. Like It'll come back. And uh, if you're long-term patient uh, with your own time and opportunity costs as an employee, as a founding team, as investors in public or private markets, time is on your side and the benefit of compounding. And so let's go back to Dara, yeah. right? So Dara. Great executive, great human, walks into a situation where he has to clean up some perception and cultural things, did a wonderful job about that, but now is living the life which he was experienced at at Expedia, and I had at Shutterfly, was, holy shit, Hmm. public investors think in quarters, not in 
years or decades right. and they want to see profitability faster so he's making smart moves right the the recent move in india the swapping of assets with dd and grab these are smart moves um he's making investments in atg and funded that separately you know because uh, autonomous could be a existentialist threat and he needs to have and he a just play said there. this week hey we're open to other autonomous on the vehicle uh, vehicles on our network right. which to me seems like the best play i think it's like a nice to have your own research and then to just align yourself with two or three of the players and say, listen, we've got three, four, 500 million credit cards in our system, whatever it winds up being. Right. We'll we, can put, we can put thousands of these on the road. Or do you want to have to go build an app and then get everybody to download it, put their credit card in, and then have operations and customer support in thousands of cities? Right. Guess what? Google owns Android, but yet other people use that platform and, and do it successfully, right? Yeah, they don't make, yeah, the Pixel is like, you know, like low single digits of all Android phones. Right. Right? And I had the pleasure of working for the CEO of McDonald's at one point, and we own 30% of the restaurants, so you can innovate and understand the complexities of operations so you can improve it for your franchisees. So there's a lot of different business models, and that's the beauty of having a seasoned executive like Dara in the seat. He has seen lots of pattern recognition. He's open-minded. He wants to maximize shareholder uh, value. And his balance, like any public CEO, is what is the time frame? Because you get hedge fund managers, you get activists, all they want is a quick pop, they're in, they're out. Yeah. And you have to make sure you're balancing for the long term and maximizing the size of the franchise while you're being thoughtful about your burn and the ability to attract and retain employees and being responsive to your public shareholders. And it's not easy. It's a, and there's no formula. And so you have to feel through that. But um, it's, it's, um, what do you get? You a, a good grade? Path. A plus, B minus, what do you give him? Um, so I think about different dimensions, right? If you think about him coming into a difficult situation, stabilizing it, I give him an A. Yeah, I give him an A plus on that. Um, and so I, I think Dar, uh, the world of Dar, he, he's an amazing human and a great uh, executive. But it's it's like SoftBank; it's a business that's in the spotlight every day. And when you, everything easy. you do uh, is under uh, scrutiny, um, there's always going to be the naysayers. But I think over the long term, Uber is going to be a great return for the public shareholders and for the folks like you who got to be employ uh, investor three. <laughs> it was pretty great. Um, do you think? The public markets have it wrong and that he should be investing at a higher rate and going for growth. Would you rather see them be at 40% growth rather than maybe going down to 20% growth, but profitable? If if you, if you were making the decisions, um, better to have a lower stock price and higher growth and take the opportunity or better to work the stock price and, and cut the difference? What would you do? Yeah, he has enough uh, armchair quarterbacks <laughs> slinging at him. Yeah. I'll say this. Um, I think you have to strike a balance. Mm. You have to make sure that you keep believers in the stock right. um, and so that you show progress towards profitability, certain markets, certain segments, and make sure you're not uh, – I always thought about what is my midterm – uh, my short term, midterm and long term. And then I'm laying enough track yeah. um, that I constantly have new things, new uh, growth vectors. And I think Dar is doing exactly that. I, uh, I'm so long on the stock. I really don't even care like what happens for the next five years. I just don't see a world where in five years, this company is not three times bigger. And And if you continue to think like Buffett, you'll be as rich as him one day. It just makes total sense. What do you think of VTOL, the vertical takeoff and landing? In China, they're actually like testing these with humans. Self-driving cars feels like, gosh, it, the edge cases are going to take a long time. If you had to pick which you could take an Uber ride in first, anywhere in the world, um, a self-driving car without a steering wheel, 
Not right. a self-driving car with a person, a proctor right. in it. And right. Forget that. That's not a self-driving car. Uh, it's like a 60, 70% of a self-driving car. I'm talking fully autonomous, no steering wheel, or a veto on a short trip like, you know, in Sydney or something over the harbor. Which one will you be taking Uber in first if to bet your entire net worth on? Or a flight to Mars. Um, yeah. So- Never bet against Elon. <laughs> I'm taking- Rule number one. I'm, uh, so I think the autonomous driving's coming first. Okay. And I think that's actually going to be in um, trucks, not passengers first okay. in the United States because sure. of regulation and safety. It's already on the road. Um, you see that without number- Without a steering wheel? Without a driver? No, they still have that. But I, the, you know, Walmart's doing some interesting things, other folks- How but, will it manifest itself, you think? Well, so today you have a lead truck with a driver in it and you have a driverless truck that is literally just following the movements of the truck uh, in front of it. So we're investors in Full Truck Alliance in China and we're investors in um, uh, GM Cruise. We're investors in Uber and ATG. And so we believe autonomous is going to have fundamental impacts on the uh, movement of goods and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think autonomous trucks first. I think autonomous um, cars mm-hmm. second, but in non-US, uh, then the Which US. first? Uh, China. Yeah. China. Why? Um, because you have a um, you have essentially controlled government that can see the future and can make things happen quicker than we have 50 states with 50 different regulations. Yes, we have a uh, federal transportation authority and others, but it's just more complex to get things done in a representative democracy than it is in in uh, in China. So I think it'll be there first. Um, and then I think we'll have flying cars. And it just strikes me. I remember my high school science teacher saying to me, Jeff, whatever you read in Isaac Asimov, will come true someday and if you just think about the advancements in our life um, between television and um, cellular and computers and internet and now we're talking about flying cars and we're not talking about the Jetsons I I really think flying cars are going to come first I'm going to take the other side because I'll get in a flying car car anytime if I don't have to sit on the 101 any day It's, it's so clear to me that over water with whatever it is there's like eight rotors and they're doubled up this is going to be so much more stable yeah, it's like and a bungee. than a car. Right. Being on the ground, there's so many things to hit. There's so many possible problems. But when you're in the air, as long as you're going out on a clear day, this thing's got eight rotors. And the kid next door is not flying his drone into you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Slight problem. But um, the videos of these things recovering now- like They're I, amazing, isn't it? It's unbelievable. People come up to them with- It's like, like the minority report. Everything's they come up to them with sticks- and they whack them. And they show like 10 years ago, you whack a drone, it, boop, boom, goes down. Then they show five years ago, you whack it, it's it kind of almost hits the ground and then kind of, you know, over three or four seconds stabilizes. Yeah, itself. now it now, looks at you and says, give me another. Yeah, you, you whack it and it goes, <laughs> fizzle, fizzle. it's like, amazing. Unbelievable. And that's going to be so safe and free and electric. So we're going to live in this world where it's not even polluting anything but bring that back to startups what we're talking about is the continued advancement of human imagination and creativity to create things that make our lives uh, better um, that provide more enjoyment that gives longevity and so um, as tech investors there'll be ups and downs and cycles we live through it right i I graduated coming out in 91 in a recession we lit right we lived it in 9 11 we lived it in the great financial recession we lived in the dot-com bust today we're living right and so it's just another cycle we even caught in high school the you know watch the 87 crash oh how about yeah the 87 crash and then uh you remember in the carter we we only got gas on odd or even days right so we've I seen remember a lot. that what was that 77 78 something in that range i remember my parents going to get gas and for people who are watching and thinking about the coronavirus and maybe having to stay home for a month imagine 
There was no gas. I mean, this is kind of like The Walking Dead, kind of like yeah. early zombie. The like Chevron the, was empty. You, you, there were people killed each other. There were literal fights and murders online for gas in the United States. Right. They were and, rationing. Yeah, they were rationing it. And the last digit of your license, license plate, plate told it, you what day. What day, yeah. even days, odds is. And my you parents were going, and the same way people are stocking up right now, people, and it was like, hey, everybody, you don't need a car to survive as a human. Right. Humans survive before cars. Humans will survive whatever's going on with Corona right now. Not to take a sidetrack here, but what's your take on this? Where we're at at this? Because it seems like we're getting very mixed messages. We don't know the denominator. We haven't done proper testing here in the United States. And it looks like, for all indications, this thing spreads really well, but it only kills people with lung issues and who are over 70. And that maybe smoking has something to do with it, uh, pollution, um, compromised lungs, that kind of stuff. Yeah. What, what do you think? Is this going to be like a year-long thing, a three-month thing? I mean, obviously, nobody knows exactly, but what is your gut telling you, and how do you as an investor look at the market today? Is this yum-yum, we're going to make investments here and, and plow right through this and get you know spectacular deals and take market share? Or do you look at it and say, let's pause and freeze up? Yeah. So first, whenever you have something like this, be it AIDS or um, MERS or uh, Typhoon, the, the most important thing is to recognize that, you know, this is affecting people's lives, right? And sure. so um, we want to put that first and foremost. Yeah, but it is, a tra- it is a human tragedy. People dying is horrific. Right. Now, society, right. business. So let's shift to business. Yeah. Um we have shown um, that modern medicine really is miraculous, right? Mm. We haven't fully solved cancer and other things, but we have eradicated many, many diseases. We've certainly allowed people to live with cancer for right? decades. A- and AIDS and other things, right? Unbelievable. And using big data, again, mm. you look at these therapeutic development companies and they're being able to understand which elements have higher efficacy and probability. And so we're shortening the um, life cycle to discover new drugs. And um, the cocktail and the interaction of drugs, so you don't have to do A-B testing, you could do experimental design, which means you test multiple variations uh, quickly using um, both computer generation and, and trials, I think we'll figure something out. But it's unknown today. Is this, you know, do we get a handle on this in three months, 10 months, or 12 um, we also don't know how many people already had it and that it was just, you know, masked as the flu or a cold, yeah, right? I, I think there's hundreds of thousands of people in America who have it. Yeah, uh, I, I would tend to agree with you. And I would actually say millions around the world. It's millions for and, sure. And the question is, how do we make sure we're being smart but not panicked? And right, right now, what I would like to see is more just a balance of sensibility that we don't need to create panic. Right. Many companies are doing smart things. They're giving employees um, the ability to work from home. Yeah. Uh, they're providing hand sanitizer. They're doing a bunch of things. But Maybe as, not shaking hands. Right. <laughs> uh, fist bumps, elbow fist bumps, bumps, right? Anything. Um, and so um, what we need to do is not get into panic. We, I would like to see our um, leaders across you know, various organizations be more thoughtful about that, putting it in perspective. More people die in their bathtub a day than they do from coronavirus. Sure. And so we got to be smart. Um, uh, and thoughtful. And as business owners, it's obviously going to have a short-term impact. Um, so travel-related companies, of which we have some in our portfolio, are seeing a rapid decline. And then others are benefiting from it or may benefit. No, DoorDash, Instacart are saying they're ha- it's whatever. It's like right. up 30x or whatever. ByteDance, TikTok, and then things that like Netflix has seen it. And then we have certain things like Veer Technology and other biotechs that are benefiting. So you saw the Sequoia like, hey, batten down the hatches, be prepared for anything. Did. This is good advice. 
it was there was nothing novel about it but it was a good timely reminder that at the end of the day as CEOs we are stewards of capital mm-hmm. and we only really have three or four jobs and one of them is protecting assets of the company another one is doing good capital allocation so you want to make sure that you're prepared and and um i i was managing shutterfly through the 0809 like i don't think anyone wishes that on you because we all had friends lose jobs and 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 um uh you know businesses go under but it creates a sense of discipline and thoughtfulness yes. about how you build a company to last. And I think keep 18 months of runway in the bank. Right. And if you're below that, have a plan to get to that. That's right. And then have That's plan, how I've done and it. then have plan B. <laughs> I, that like literally I've always had plan A, B, and C. And I talked to founders and I was like, let's go into cockroach mode here. We have we're spending, pick a number, three hundred thousand a month. We're not able to raise capital, things are going wrong what would this business look like with $50,000 in spend? Right. Because when you come to people with a company losing $4 million a year, the chances of getting funded, and it's an operate at the seed stage, it's a different magnitude than what you do. But the chances of getting funded as a company burning 600000 a year is 10x what a company burning $6 million a year is, let alone a company burning $6 million a month or $60 million a month. So I'm asking all my CEOs, we have a base plan, Let's have a low plan and let's have a disaster plan. And disaster what would we do planning. different? What would we do different in terms of um, our discretionary spending, in terms of our fixed costs, in terms of the way we go to market, how we differentiate against the competitors? And I'll give you a, a real example. So in, in, I, I joined uh, Shutterfly in January of 05, and um, we were competing with Ophoto, which became Kodak Gallery. We were competing with Snapfish and all these other thousand-backed uh, venture-backed companies yeah. in the space. And um, 07, we accelerated growth to 51% above 47 from 06. And then, and I beat year over year growth. This year over year growth. Really hard to take a big number and add and 50% to, to it. It's hard. And I beat my numbers 44 out of 45 quarters, but I missed Q1 of 08 because it was when the recession hit. Sure. Everybody was like, I'm not spending money. And we made quick adjustments. And yet, the best form of venture capital, I think, is called free cash flow. Yeah. And so we were, um, we were free cash flow positive. Define free cash flow. People, people know what cash is. They yep. know the word free but it's kind of confusing for people when you put the two together free yeah. cash so after you've uh, you've taken in revenue by selling a product or service yeah. after you've paid everybody you owe all of it everyone the people uh, the marketers for customer acquisition the people who made your product your inputs your Lawyers, labor and everyone rent. and then you paid taxes what okay. is left over at the end of the day? What so if you're a small business free. owner, yeah. it's what's left over uh, after you pay taxes in the cash register. That's so it. that's free cash flow. So so we had money in the bank. We were growing. We were profitable. And so what I said to my management team, I got them all in a room and then the board. I said, guys, here here's where I believe we should be. Um, if we focus on three to four things instead of the five to seven we're doing, we don't have to fire anyone. We're going to put a hiring freeze, but we don't have to fire anyone. We could pay a 100% bonus. But what I'm going to ask all of you to do is make sure that we're communicating and executing flawlessly and that we're focused on uh, customer centricity, that our customers are in a world of pain right now. And yet we offer an affordable luxury and they may not go out and buy a cashmere sweater. But they're still going to have birthdays, sweet sixteens, marriages, celebrations yeah, of life. They could do a photo book. What brings you more joy, the cashmere sweater or the photo book? Exactly. Pretty obvious. What and, a brilliant insight. And so the thing that happened, Jason, was in 2008, we continued to invest in R and D and execute. And Kodak went like this, uh, way down, and we went way up. 
And when we came out of the recession, um, that's when it was game over, and I bought Kodak out of bankruptcy for $24 million. All right. Let's, uh, we have some mirror portfolio companies. Let's do a lo- little rapid fire here All right. of um, what attracted us to those spaces, how, how it's going, and what we think the future is. Uh, so we have Cafe X, Robotic Coffee Company. Uh, you have Zoom Pizza. Uh, I met the Zoom Pizza people. Uh, I think they got to about 60%, 70% of the process being automated. This is a very complex one to automate. Coffee a little bit easier. Coffee easier. A lot easier. We've got ours up and running at SFO doing a lot of revenue, complete vendor machine status and serving you know thousands of orders. It works. Um, but boy, has it been hard. Five years. Hardware you have to get right. Software you have to get right. Food you've got to get right. Yep. And location you've got to get right. You got it. And then you so have to have defici- uh, differentiation. And differentiation, right. I mean, you want to, it's like literally mind boggling hard when compared to enterprise software. Yes. Or like a photo sharing app. <laughs> uh, all due respect, photo sharing business. Uh, photo photo sharing is easy. Try making a physical photo. Try making a physical book, right. Now complex goes up. Uh, tell me about Zoom Pizza. How did you guys find that investment? We, we obviously read the headline that they've contracted. Is that just too hard of a thing to do pizza? Or, um, will they come out of this? Or you think that it's just going to be a zero? Yeah, so I'm not as close to it because it wasn't okay. my deal, but I'll give you a high level. high level. The thesis was not about robotic pizza. No. It was really about can you automate food processing with pizza being an easy one to start with? Yeah. And it's harder than you, you said, yeah. right? And so Alex is a very... Um, brilliant, brilliant um, uh, uh, visionary and also an amazing sales guy, right? Like you'd be around him. He just fills you with energy. And so the company is pivoting right now and focusing on innovation in one part of that uh, uh, value chain, which is around um, unique, sustainable, good for the earth packaging right now. Perfect. Yeah. And then we, you have Conterra. 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 They're making modular prefab, come type of housing. Explain it to us what it is. Yeah. So if you think about construction today, um, you are building your product outside and you have to deal with weather. You have to deal with changes. You have to have many subcontractors and vendors get it all right and coordinated at the same time. You have to deal with local regulation. And then every single building is bespoke. And so what Michael Marks, the CEO, who was CEO of Tesla and Flextronics, um, coming out of an industry that was about standardization and consistency and high volume, said, why aren't people in construction using technology and standardization and global supply chains to lower the cost, to increase the speed to market, Mm -hmm. and to provide a better uh, product? And that's what he's doing. And so- um, Have they actually built any- is anything in market yet or they're doing billions of dollars of revenue wow and so the business is scaling quite quickly and we're in india we're in the middle east we're in the united states we can do a single family home multi-story um garden apartments we could do mid-rise high-rise we're doing hospitals and malls Um, construction is the hardest space isn't it it is and what's anything harder than construction um and real estate can you think of a category that's harder uh, not to execute, but like biotech is more hit and miss, right? It's hard to get okay, there, but but it's very high execution risk. We did blockable, yeah, and they're doing modular housing, stackable, and really the insight is very similar, which is if you build something in a factory, you don't have to deal with the neighbors complaining about the noise right. or it raining. That's right. And you unlock the ability to use materials that cannot be used in the field. Exactly. You can't use some of these new composites and cut them in the field. No. They have to be cut with a laser, water, high pressure cutter, and it's all non-standard. So you you build this bespoke house, right. and then you hire a bunch of people, and they're sitting there in the mud, in the rain, 
under a tarp, cutting sheetrock. And here's the crazy part about the economics and the value chain is the entire industry, right? And it's the second largest industry in the world after um, retail. Right. It's about 16.5% of global GDP is that they push the decision-making and the capital down to the subcontractor, which is a guy with uh, two pickup trucks and five other guys, and he's buying his supplies at Home Depot. Literally, that's what's happening in this. I mean, the only thing I can think of that's more backwards right now is the American healthcare system or the American <laughs> education system. Like, if you think about, like, what's changed in either of those, yeah. nothing has changed. You just hit on something that was fascinating. So before I joined SoftBank, about a month before, I was reading this report, and it was the 120 um, uh, uh, global sectors, industrial sectors. And it was a report about the prevalence and penetration of technology across those 120. Oh, so I flipped to the end really quickly. Yeah, give me, the, give me the, the bottom four. Hold on, hold on. Guess. I'm going to do it. Um, I, obviously, construction, healthcare, construction, healthcare, education have to be three of the four. You, you got it. Now, the fourth is going to be really hard for me. Let me think this through. Uh, it's government a category? No. Because governments are pretty dysfunctional. Travel? No, that's pretty What do you mean? Our nuclear codes on COBOL is not forward thinking? Yeah. I mean, I, I would almost think government, but I don't know if that a category. Agriculture. Agriculture. Okay, that makes So sense. if you look at, I've done 15 investments in, uh. in, in nearly three years, and most of them have been in those four sectors. But wait a second, isn't agriculture like factory farming incredibly technologically advanced and sophisticated, the food chain supply, or no? No, we've been building houses same way for 300 years, and we've been essentially tilling our land. Um, yes, we use tractors instead of a ox, right. but it's essentially the same approach. Wow. And so Plenty basically brought the farm outside, indoors. We use no pesticides because oh, there yeah, are no bugs. Oh, tell me about that company. I, I'm not aware of this one. It, it's did. fascinating. And so- um, What's the name of the company? It's called Plenty. Plenty. And they're providing uh, leafy greens today. Right. And so if you think about a traditional farm as the size of a standard soccer field, uh -huh. um, we are producing the same output in the goalie pitch as in the entire field. And we're doing it indoors and then turning it on its side vertically. Oh, vertical farming, sure. And we're using proprietary um, lighting so that the plants are getting light for 17 or 18 hours a day. We're using um, IoT. 50% more light. More light. And I we're bet you it's more efficient light. Much more efficient. We're using IoT senses and big data to understand the exact formula of nutrients and oxygen and nitrients that the plant needs to grow and to produce a fruit. Um, or, or leaves yeah. um, we each one is independent and then machine learning is taking all that data we're spitting off petabytes of data every day and week um, and then there's no pesticides it's indoors and we're using less than five percent of the water that a traditional farm does wow. and so it tastes amazing um, robots cut it so it's a robotic thing it, it is it's unbelievable and we're now we just launched in your local Safeway we're in Byright we're in Whole Foods is the vertical farm in those places no the vertical farm right now is in South San Francisco Got but it. you can buy it next to your organic um, uh, leafy greens and one of so the so isn't the doesn't that mean like it doesn't have to travel as far? So it'll you got be it. fresher and then you also don't need to burn as much fossil fuel to get it there. Oh, you, 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 you see this is why you're successful. Um, the, the average fruit and vegetable in America travels 2,600 miles to get to your local this supermarket. So, so imagine we put 400 so of these across the United States. And when you talk about farm to table, we're really talking about farm yeah, I mean, to table. If you table. did that, the most, the 80, 90% of the population lives in like 20% of the landmass here. So if you plant them right, you'll be within, I would guess, 30 miles. Mile. Yeah. yeah. 30 miles it. of 
80 percent of the country will be within 30 miles yeah. of one and of guess things. what you ever see that ugly green slime in the bottom of your um uh, clamshell of uh, lettuce or kale oh. that you buy oh. um so because gross. it travels in the uh, supply yes, chain so long it degrades well and hours last two to three weeks longer um and you never have to wash it you never have to wash right, it it's not outside it's, there's no, no pesticides, pesticides, no humans touched uh, it. It's an amazing company. Will um, that ever be in the, cause I get pitched on vertical farming constantly. There's a lot of people out there doing it. And I guess you Elon's got, brother, Kimball's trying. Kimball's got yeah. like his, uh, he's got the micro ones that are yep. very close. Is that, um, is the mission eventually to have those like in the supermarket in the back so you actually see this occurring or like you'll go to a, like a Costco for vegetables and just walk up and down the aisle and watch the robot cut the next one and hand it to you? Yeah, I, I think we'll have centralized uh, manufacturing, oh, okay. if you will. And you may have displays of this in the ah, store so that people get an so experiential. Yeah. Um, and one of the cool things today is we harvest daily. Harvest daily. Because the farm just moves like this and the robots, yeah. so it grows. And then we're working on strawberries and other berries. So, you know, you ever get the white strawberries that taste yeah. like nothing? Yeah. Imagine if you live back on the East Coast still, you'd get strawberries two months a year. Yeah. How about amazing, juicy strawberries. Um, uh, strawberries? Perfect. 12 months a year. That's amazing. Well, you just, I've always had this theory that we are going to live in our lifetime. It, it, to the moment where you know how water is essentially free for humans in America like yeah, it's not we, though we pay for it in a bottle all the time I don't we pay for it in a bottle but it's essentially water is free yes. like nobody's ever complaining like I can't get a glass of water I think produce is going to become so affordable to produce that it's going to be close to free because if you if you succeed in what you're doing the cost you're taking out probably 60-70% of the cost you're going to be, not only is it going to be better and perfect, it's going to cost at least 50% less. And you know what touches my heart? There, there's 7.2 billion people in the world today and a billion seven of them are undernourished. Mm -hmm. So if we could provide nutritionally dense fruits and vegetables and our recent investment in Memphis meats, um, proteins without the slaughter. Which one does Memphis meats do? So, What's uh, their burger? Uh, so, so you have impossible and beyond that is pea and soy protein. Ugh. Memphis is actually making from a quarter size biopsy of a cow right. or a chicken. They're growing in a laboratory actual meat without the slaughter is it of animals. It is not. It's still in. Um, have you tasted it? I have, and it's amazing. Really? It, you can't tell the really? difference. You can't see it or tell the difference. It was Beyond Meat, which was doing another soy based thing, and I saw like the uh, Mark Bittman, the guy from the New York Times, when he put it chicken in sauce, he couldn't tell. The difference, but when look, you eat look that, at that chicken. That piece of chicken tastes like chicken What's because. The mouth feel like? Oh, so you you hit it. So what their uh, their expertise is? Remember, I said I looked at twenty seven global yeah. competitors. Yeah. It was that deal. So getting both the taste profile right and the mouth feel, That's, so that yeah, you feel, feel the sinew and you yeah. feel the tissue and stuff. Yeah. They figured out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so right now, if you look at about twenty five percent of greenhouse gas comes from cows. And then yeah. the transportation, then the growing of the corn and the yeah. use of the and water the and water the pesticides bombs. for that. Does this use less or more water? It, it's got to use less. It uses none. None. Um, and it, no animals slaughtered. And you don't have bacteria because almost 100% no of your e. meat has E. coli because it comes from the intestines. Yeah. And then also you don't have the antibiotics being shot into you these You have things. no antibiotics. You know and so this is um, the CEO here, Mayo Clinic trained cardiologist. Who's that? 
Um, his name is Uma Valetti. Can I we had, get him on the pod, Nick? Let's put. Let's put uh, a, let's I just put had lunch with him. You've asked him. He's going to wait till it's ready to be produced. No, 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 no. Come on, no, no, no. He's got to come on. And give me a little preview. He, he's an amazing man with a vision. I'll come to him. Where is he? Is he uh, he's in Oakland. And I'll and, come to him. And I'll his, go there. I want to go see the factory. His vision is really one. I mean, he wants to make money for his investors. But if this works, oh, this is we like, fundamentally impact human longevity. Also, think about just we're going to be judged on the cruelty that this factory farming has in a hundred years, people will look back on this and they'll look at us. Done that? Yeah. They're going to look at us and be like, you guys were just horrible. Right. This is just medieval. You put cows into this like kind of situation. What people also don't realize is I, but my thesis on this as a person who is just a foodie, I think we're going to make new products that surpass what exists in nature. So, if you love duck, I love Peking duck. They're going to make a Peking duck that's thirty percent better. And I saw he, they have he duck. Has duck. Uh, and Not I only think, that, can I? So he was yeah. a cardiologist. And when you have a heart attack, what's the first thing your doctor says? No okay, meat. exercise and reduce protein. Right. And so we could amp up different components of the protein oh. and the amino acids. So if you're a young athlete, we can make it denser. If you're a wow. recovering heart patient, and and it's not genetically modified. It's just we're expressing the natural genes and the natural wow. build process through the what we call the media. So like when you go get milk and it's like one percent, two percent lactose, they give you like eight different right. kind of variations. Vitamin, extra vitamin D, whatever. Right. We're going to go and buy, instead right. of buying steak, we're going to buy steak for 50-year-olds. You got it. Steak for 20-year-olds. But so you're going to even go further, I believe, in our society. We're going to have all of our DNA strands will be mapped, and we're going to know the appropriate diet for both oh our Lord. historical um, uh, genetics, genetics yeah, as well as our lifestyle. And so you'll be able to have what I call mass customization yeah. of your food that will increase your vitality and your longevity. Uh, so your Fitbit longevity. and your Apple Watch are going to feed into your 23andMe, are going to feed into your Memphis Meats, and you're going to get a custom hamburger. You got it. It's so bonkers. The world's going to be great. All right. Uh, let's talk about the debacle uh, WeWork. Were you involved in that one? WeWork? What's that? WeWork, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I was in a WeWork. It was a, it was a brilliant idea. Product market fit to a level that is rarely seen. What happened there? Because it's easy to dunk on you guys before WeWork because were you know Adam was a little bit let's just say unique in his approach. <laughs> um, is that, let, let me ask it a simple way. Do you think there's a save there? Cause you guys put more money in cause it was a great product. We, we absolutely think there's a save and, okay. and Masa just used the balance sheet of SoftBank group to invest. We own roughly 80% of the business. Mm. And so, as you said, you guys own 80% of it. now. We own 80% of it. And as you said, product market fit, um, it's a really, really good product. Mm. And um, the core business is a good business. Yeah. Now, Adam had such vision of taking a core product and turning it into what I'll call a lifestyle brand right. that he got distracted um, by going into other ventures. The core business is great. We just put in Marcelo uh, Kluwer, who is the uh, CEO of uh, Sprint. and Legit uh, CEO. Uh, yeah, Super legit. He knows what he's doing, right? And yeah. so we just attracted a world-class CEO, new management team, and we fundamentally believe that this will be not just a good business, it's going to be a good investment. It's going to take longer than we thought, right. but we have conviction around that. See, this is what's great, I think. You know, even if you make a mistake... Your point earlier was, you know, the capital is an advantage. This will be the example of it. When you guys figure this one out and it gets back up to where it previously hit the high water mark, I know, Moss, I know you're like, you guys will, if it takes 10 years, you'll, you'll, you'll make a point of making this one work and that's going to be the greatest dunk ever. What's the lesson around um, 
founder voting shares in governance because that existed as a problem long before SoftBank raised the vision fund. And I am training all my founders. Here's what proper governance looks like. You don't need super voting shares. You need to start having meeting. I start having board meetings and I have a training program for our accelerator where I do four board meetings with each of the founders and we have them sit in on each other's board meetings so they learn. And this is long before they should even have a board. Y Combinator says don't have any governance. That's a huge mistake. Governance is an absolute advantage. Right, and you got to get trained before you really need it. And so yes, earlier of, is better. Earlier is, of course, better. What are the lessons? What do you do differently now post super voting shares and all this other stuff? Uh, or do you think it's just a one-off? Yeah, as you said, this is not a soft bank uh, issue. This has uh, existed long before Evan uh, ha- had it at Snap and Larry and Sergey had it and Mark hasn't. Like, and so um, the valley goes through cycles where it's um, investor uh, friendly or entrepreneur friendly. And given the um, mass amounts of uh, capital chasing yield, as we talked about, people started getting more lax around terms because the deals were hot. And right. if you wanted to win, you were getting asked to do things that your mind told you you shouldn't do, but your mm. body decided to do anyway, right. right? It's like me playing basketball at 50. Yeah. I'm sore for four days. Yeah. And so we allowed some governance um, uh, lapses, um, but we weren't the only one. There were other yeah. institutional VCs sitting around table, but the lesson learned um, is to make sure that you have good corporate governance. Second is we talked about nail it, then scale it. Yeah. And so you have to make sure your focus, I talked about know who your customer is, who your core product yep. is, has relentless focus. And half of strategy, this is one of Jeff's 25 Jeffisms, yeah. is half of strategy is what you're not going to do. Right. right? You have to be articulate that to the organization or you get scope creep and Absolutely. you know what, nothing gets done. So I think relentless focus, nail it, then you scale it, good corporate governance, and in making sure you don't um, get too swept up in the uh, hype because it's such a hot deal that you're doing. Um, you're making sure that you're thinking about the funda- fundamental valuation and thesis. Uh, as I said, we are big believers. We just backed up the truck and used the balance sheet to um, become owners, essentially a private equity buyout. And I think in the long term, like many things Moss has done, he's going to be proven out to be right. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I mean, give me another Jeffism while we wrap up here. Give me a couple more. Okay. I got two so far. Yep. So um, culture matters and you need to put it in place when things are good because when things are bad, it's too late. Uh, so that's <laughs> an important I know one. It. I made that mistake. Uh, another Jeffism is um, customer centricity, customer centricity, customer centricity. And I think we all learned in business school that uh, a job of CEO is to maximize shareholder value. I think that's true. But the way you get there is you make sure you have an amazing product or service. You treat your customers really well. You cre- uh, treat your employees and your stakeholders well. And if you do that, you'll return uh, for your shareholders. Well, what's going on with Vision Fund 2? Uh, I know that the, I, you know, I just I hear the headlines in the press, but you're here. So how's it going? Um, so we're continuously having dialogue with our current LPs and new LPs. Um, Masa has recently said on earnings that, um, you know, we have a lot of capital and access to capital. In the last few months alone, Alibaba is up $40 billion for us. So we have a lot of capital um, to draw upon. We invested off the balance sheet for about 18 months before Vision Fund 1 got closed. We're still making investments. We just announced uh, Carius and we announced Alto Pharmacy and we announced Behavox uh, in the last few weeks alone. So um, we're open for business. We're making deals. Um, and uh, I am confident that Masa has uh, the ability to continue to attract uh, capital. The thing that's interesting is I think because of the scale, you get that spotlight. If you dropped two zeros off of everything you did and it was just a billion dollar fund making $10 million investments in Brandless or 100 million investments in Uber, whatever it wound up being, 
it wouldn't freak press out or give people the ability to dunk on you. When they see like a billion dollars or $2 billion, it just gets like, whoa, that's a lot of money. But when I invest in companies, I expect 70% to be a zero, one or two to return what I put in or less, and then one out of every 20 or 30. That will carry the fund. That Yeah. But is that the same math for you guys or is- how it's, do you look at it? It's roughly the same math. It's a little bit, we'll have a few, a few less zeros because we mm-hmm. tend to do mid to late stage. So we have a lot that are early. And so it's the same thing. It's a portfolio yeah. play for us. And what's, what's interesting is, as you said, you expect some to go to zero. So brandless, I, I put in a le- uh, hundred million. I will have lost less than a hundred million dollars. Right. And if you took, um, a billion dollar fund, let's say it's bond, right? Right. That would be the equivalent of Mary losing a million bucks. Right. Mary's not in the press losing a million bucks. It right. happens to name the firm every yeah. single day. And so I think the zeros magnetizes because it's sensationalist. Right. It gets clicks. Um, but we are running a portfolio play for yeah. our LPs, just like any venture fund is. Yeah. So this is what I, this is why I think the, the journalism is failing right now is because they don't understand what venture capital and what risk capital is all about. It's about doing a lot of experiments. Obviously, in the later stages are fully, much more fully formed visions. But in the early stage, nobody looks at me investing in, you know, 40, 50, 60 accelerator companies a year or Paul Graham doing 300 or the two Davids at uh, Techstars doing 450. They don't look at us and see a 70% mortality rate and go, you guys are idiots. Oh my God, you guys are blowing through capital. But when you guys do much less than that, it's like, oh my God, these guys are just slashing, losing billions. But one thing hits, DD hits, Uber hits, any of the other things hit. These are, you expect 10, 20, 30X. Is that the rough expectation? Yeah, we'll, we'll expect a little lower multiple because of the stage we came in, but yeah, the, math, Uber, the math still works. What's Uber? 3X, 4X would be happy with? Uh, I 10 think years? Yeah, if you put in seven into something and you take three or 4X, I think uh, that will have been Huge. a great uh, return. And so, look, we expect media scrutiny, right? When you come on the scene in any industry and you disrupt the established players, you bring a different perspective, you do it on order of magnitude that we're doing, we expect the scrutiny. But what I would like people to do, which is what I think you're uh, bringing is a balanced perspective that says um, what we're doing uh, uh, and how it relates to others and right. having an equal lens in which you look uh, through that. It could be a larger lens, but have it as a balanced approach. We're going to make mistakes. Uh, we're going to have setbacks. We're going to have things go to zero. We're going to get one X or two X. We're going to get singles and doubles. We'll have a few home runs. And I think over a long period of time, this is such a unique platform changing the way we um, yeah. do late stage investing. And I'm, I'm, I'm voting every day with my agent agency of showing up and uh, being part of this amazing journey. All right, listen, I could talk to you for another hour, but I've already talked to you for an hour and a half. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming on the pod. Really appreciate you being so candid about everything. For founders, when's the right time for a founder to kind of reach out to SoftBank and ask for an investment or you find them? Well, yeah, so I, I, I'd like to meet them early and watch their journey great. and haven't been an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So if it's after they've just raised their Series A, That's I think is a timing. good point in time. Come tell me your story. Catch perfect. me up. Let's get lunch three or four times a year. And when you're ready, we now have a relationship perfect. and it goes much quicker. So um, it. it's been such a pleasure to be on. And yeah. just remember, bring the checkbook to the poker game. Absolutely. You're in. I ha- Listen, w- there's a, there is a uh, secret poker game 
name uh, I've heard. And uh, yeah, maybe if a seat's open, I can uh, give you a little text and let you know. All right. Um, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks to the partners. Thanks to Nick and Sir Charles on the ones and the twos. And thanks to Matt for keeping the lights on. Jackie for running the accelerator. Ashley for crushing it at the syndicate.com. Presh doing growth. Sunny doing the front line. Uh, Maureen uh, working it out for the sponsors. Just everybody. Thanks to the team. I'm basically the whole company. If I left you out, don't worry, Heidi. You're doing a good job. Mary, you're doing a great job. And we will see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.